MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official Challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways you probably haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Questlove, and Kate Blanchett. In recent weeks, I had talked to actor Dan Levy, director Ava DuVernay, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Too Much Information is a production of iHeartRadio. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Too Much Information, the show that brings you the secret histories and little-known fascinating facts and figures behind your favorite TV shows, movies, music, and more. We are your trivial trio. I'm Alex Heigl. And I'm Jordan Runtalk, and welcome to Jackass. Someone had to do it. I'm sorry. Well, in that daring spirit of adventure, Jordan, we have our first ever guest on the program. I am not going to risk death and dismemberment by having her here, but I'm very excited. Today's guest on our program is Maggie Coughlin. Maggie was my editor at both People Magazine and Page Six at the New York Post, for which I would like to apologize. (laughs) Maggie, where are you now? (laughs) I am at Vanity Fair now, overseeing the vanity section of the website. So it's anything you read about like celebrities, royals, beauty, style, fashion, that's all kind of in my wheelhouse. Recently interviewed one of my heroes, Jens Lechman, the Swedish pop musician. I named my college radio show Saturday Night at the Drive-In Bingo after him. So you are a, a goddess in my eyes. We're so happy to have you here. <laughs> well, that thanks is... for having me. I listen to you guys all the time. So this is a true honor. Jordan, that's so funny. I didn't know that about He was going to come by the conservatory and do a bunch of stuff with students. Really? Yeah. And then, oh, co- that's and then, so cool. yeah, it was over the spring. It was over COVID. But. That's what inspired my story. I saw him when he was doing the tour with student orchestras yeah. and they were wearing super cool jumpsuits and did a whole story about it. He's a very interesting guy. He was very good over email, I have to say. Considering a decade <laughs> plus of doing my job over email, he was a delight. <laughs> um, okay, so today we are talking about one of the most durable franchises in TV and film history the Black Eyes that launched a thousand ships. And sent innumerable young and impressionable men. I largely have to assume they were men. Yeah. (laughs) Maybe you can correct me on that later, Maggie. To the ER. That's right. We are talking about Jackass. Maggie, when we sent you a list of possible topic episodes, you kind of jumped at this one as much as one can. Um, (laughs) Why was that? I mean, I want to say that, you know, the past years have not been easy for anyone. And when this new movie, Jackass Forever, came out, 
I laughed so hard. Yes. I was crying. <laughs> and the fact that I'm still laughing at this kind of humor 20 years later was like, man, you love this stupid stuff. You should talk to these guys about it. So there's that. But I also kind of grew up pretty close to skateboarding culture. I started my career, my career quotes, uh, by writing a zine and I sold it in a tiny skate shop in town. And, you know, that was like the only place I could sell it. And these skateboarding dudes totally like took money and like would hold it for me. And it was great. And then when I was in college, I worked in a skate shop. So I grew up around watching skate videos. Like, you, do you remember like really sorry? Like that video? Yeah. I was and, more like, of a, I was more of a, a girl. Like, yeah, yeah. Right. That was the next one I was going to say, yeah. like all the girl skateboarding stuff. So that was that's always Spike kind Jones of again, too, right? Yeah. Isn't it? Yeah. So he, mm -hmm. that's another jackass connection. Yeah. I mean, Spike I, Jones was like super influential in a lot of our, what we saw on TV and yeah. all of this stuff. So, I mean, later when I was at page six, Chelsea Hirsch, who was one of our fabulous reporters, Alex, you worked with her too. She did mm -hmm. a big story on jackass and that was really great to work on. So their personal lives are like as interesting as the stuff they do on camera. I was the exact target demographic for this show and it worked. And uh, I think a lot of my attempts at imitating it stopped with the shopping cart thing. But I also grew up in skateboarding culture, which I was terrible at. I suck at skateboarding. You want to that this, the reason I can oh. do that is from skateboarding. I'm glad this um, is a podcast. Yeah, as I listen to you don't want to see that, that unnatural <laughs> finger bend that we just had to see. Um, which I'll but, never unsee. Uh, yeah, that's my party trick. I like to pull that one out. Um, yeah, but then I just, I, I you know, because I was playing bass at around the same time, I started to take music a little bit more seriously. And I went to one of my bass lessons with one of my fingers in a sling. And my teacher let this, like, long, disgusted sigh out. And he's this, like, crabby old jazz guy. He's like, the f is wrong with you? <laughs> so that thus ended my flirtation with jackass reenacting it anyway i've never stopped watching it it's hilarious if you grew up in the suburbs and there's not a lot to do yep. getting into a shopping cart with your friends like when everything else is closed going to a diner like this was the height of my social life yeah very much so oh yeah i think that's one of the things that made it connect with so many people was that it was so suburban i mean this was the stuff that kids would do in the summer when they were bored to make their friends laugh i don't know there's something like kind of almost sweet or quaint about that like are kids bored still like i don't think they're bored in the same <laughs> way that you cute. would risk it's... life and limb okay maybe instead of like you know getting stitches i can just do a TikTok dance. Well, I think I think the other thing too is that there like the infrastructure for sharing this stuff was not really there. Mm -hmm. I mean, like you would you could tape your tape it around and submit it. If you were skateboarding, you could send it to a you know, if you weren't, if you were just hurting each other, I guess you could send it to like somebody who deals in snuff films or something. But <laughs> oh my god. But like, yeah, you're just doing it for your friends. Yeah. I mean, it does seem to really forecast a lot of media trends. I mean, in addition to you know, more corporate level ones like MTV moving away from doing music related stuff and moving more towards reality. And also you get that whole string of kind of bro-y comedies like Old School and Step Brothers and The Hangover from the early and mid 2000s. But then, yeah, like you said, you have the bigger picture stuff like people broadcasting their jackassy antics on social media. You could really view the jackass cast as early viral video stars, these nobodies doing stupid, insane stuff. It's like them in sports bloopers. <laughs> yeah, America's funny blueprint for the yeah, the blueprint for the right there, the trifecta. That's what caused <laughs> YouTube. So, from the iconic theme song to the projected medical costs the cast incurred, to which icons of American literature inspired Johnny Knoxville along the way, here's everything you didn't know about Jackass. <laughs> 
Though Jackass is clearly a collective effort, and we will get to some of the other players in a minute, it is not really arguable that Johnny Knoxville is the battered face of the franchise. Born Philip John Clapp in Knoxville, Tennessee, to a tire and car salesman father and a Sunday school teacher mother, which... Is that appropriate? Does that sound like a? It sounds like a Faulkner character. Uh, the triple the triple name ha- gives me serial killer or assassin vibes too. Yeah. You know, that's that's never good. Uh, he said he told Rolling Stone in two thousand one. This is just a right off the bat getting weird with it. My dad's name is Phil too, and he was always pulling pranks on me when I was growing up. When I was seven or eight, he would get a hot dog and microwave it for ten seconds, get it lukewarm and flaccid, and run it through my lips when I was sleeping. I'd wake up and he'd be like zipping up his pants. I'd say, what are you doing? And he'd explode with laughter. I hate that. I hate that. <laughs> that is giving me big, big anxiety. I, I, if any therapist out there, please get in touch because I would love to know at what point a prank crosses the line from joke into actual abuse. Uh, yeah, his dad seems like a real character. He apparently would sometimes just throw a glass of water at Johnny while he slept to wake him up. But Johnny apparently loved it. So I guess there's there's that. His dad was his real hero, his comedy hero. But uh, Johnny Knoxville was very sick as a kid, and he struggled with a case of severe asthma and couldn't play outside very often. And he was hospitalized frequently, which sets the theme for the rest of his life, I guess. <laughs> yeah. uh, when he was eight years old, he contracted bronchitis, pneumonia, and the flu at the same time, he hit the triple crown of respiratory illnesses, and it almost killed him. But this undoubtedly built up his physical endurance and likely sowed the seeds of his personal death wish. So if you care to examine the psychology and psyche of Johnny Knoxville, which I do, you can extrapolate a great deal from these anecdotes. And he's talked about the emotional rush that he gets from doing what he does, not so much the stunt itself, but as he told GQ this year, Quote, the exhilaration and relief once you get to the other side of the stunt. So It's not the danger, it's the surviving the danger that he gets off on. Yeah, basically. That seems normal. And not to go too deep into the armchair psychoanalysis of Mr. Knoxville, but I find it really interesting that he said when he started seeing a therapist in the wake of his MTV success, he told her he wasn't interested in exploring the part of him that wanted to do stunts. He said, I know it needs looking at, but I didn't want to break the machine, which is something you find a lot, I feel like, with musicians and comedians. They don't want to look under the hood. They don't want to whatever thing that makes them special to go away. They don't want to get better. They don't want to get healed. That's what makes them, you know, in a lot of cases, really hard to treat from a a psychiatric standpoint. I mean, if you think about it this way, if you're a kid and you're laid up with bronchitis, pneumonia, and the flu, all you want to do is go outside and play. And essentially, this guy made a whole career of it. Wow, that's a really great point. Yeah. All right. Therapist, don't weigh in on us. We have Maggie here (laughs) to do your role for you. Uh, Knoxville was an all-star baseball pitcher in Ah. high school, but when he graduated, he moved out to California to make it. Uh, He appeared in commercials for Coors Light, Taco Bell, Mountain Dew, among others, or as an extra. He was also uh, had a bit part in the Ben Stiller show, ironically playing a life-sized Oscar statuette. Um, (laughs) And he's actually apparently a pretty talented actor. He'd earned a scholarship to the prestigious American Academy of Dramatic Arts, but quit after a very short time. And during his early days in L.A., he lived next door to Heather Graham. I would imagine a pre-Boogie Nights Heather Graham. 
Uh, but yeah, obviously at this point he has not yet hit his big break and with his girlfriend pregnant at the time, he needed cash. So he brainstorms other ways to make money and hits upon the idea of testing out various self-defense items on himself, which he said was a, an evil attempt at imitating my hero, Hunter S. Thompson. In addition to Hunter S. Thompson, Knoxville credits a copy of Jack Kerouac's On the Road, which was given to him by his cousin, who's a singer-songwriter named Roger Allen Wade with getting him bitten by the acting bug. So do you feel robbed that we each have like two names and these guys are like John Philip Clapp, Roger <laughs> Allen Wade. I'm just out here. Maggie Coglin too. Hunter yeah. S Thompson. Yeah. You know, yeah, what? yeah. <laughs> I do. Uh, well, Maggie, you're, were you a Catholic school kid? <laughs> I was a public school kid, but I, so you have a you know, confirmation. I was you confirmed. Have a, you have a confirmation I have name. a confirmation yeah. name. Yeah. Mine's but I don't use it. Mine, Do yeah. you use yours? No, no. But I feel like I could if I wanted to go three names. I could go Alex John Heigl. That doesn't have wow. a good ring to it. Jordan, what about you? Are you confirmed? Uh, no, my middle name is Richard after my dad, who used to love calling me. Uh, he goes by Dick, and he used to call me Little Dick to torment me in front of uh, my friends. Um, so speaking of dads with yeah. not great senses of humor. Putting a pin in that one. Uh, <laughs> So, yes, he described this uh, idea of testing out self-defense items on himself as an evil attempt at imitating my hero, Hunter S. Thompson. Yeah, in his office, you have two framed portraits, Hunter S. Thompson and Evil Knievel, the famous stunt daredevil yep. from the 70s. Put them together, you get Johnny Knoxville. That's it. Um, he pitched Howard Stern, who turned him down, and some magazines offering the article along with a supplemental tape of his efforts. Uh, Knoxville would end up meeting Hunter S. Thompson, actually, in New Orleans at one point through Sean Penn. Uh, they had a, quote, typically gonzo night, and Knoxville remembers that he got a call from a few weeks before Thompson killed himself, and he asked Johnny Knoxville for a 4,000 candle power illumination grenade. Big, bright bastards. Because you got to do it like you got to do it like Hunter S. Thompson. Big, big, bright bastards. Big, bright bastards. <laughs> because he was coming down to Louisiana to interview a former governor, Edwin Edwards, who was then incarcerated. I don't know why you need a flashbang grenade for that, but I'm also not Hunter S. Thompson. I think you said four thousand, and it's forty thousand. Oh, I was trying to downplay it subconsciously. <laughs> no, no, we gotta, we gotta shoot this one to the moon. That's too many candle powers. And this governor guy, he he's, a, again, quite a character. He was quoted in a national newspaper as saying that Viagra is made from his blood. Mm. I wonder if he and Charlie <sighs> Sheen have mutual acquaintances. Yeah, weirdly enough, Knoxville would then be arrested in 2009 for walking into LAX with a prop grenade from a photo shoot still in his bag. Jesus Christ. <laughs> it's funny because, I mean, we're talking about all, most of the jackass guys come from skating backgrounds and they have their skating idols. But many of Johnny Knoxville's heroes were actually, uh, in addition to human cartoons, actual cartoons. He said in interviews that he drew inspiration for some of the jackass stunts from places like Tom and Jerry and Looney Tunes. And he specifically cited the scene where Wiley Coyote fires himself out of a cannon, which <laughs> is something that Johnny Knoxville has attempted in one form or another, I think several times in the movies I, and on the it's show. the most recent one where he, he shows the hole where it blew out and he's like, well, that would have been a couple inches to the right. That would have been a wrap on old Johnny. And then, he, and then he went in and did it again. Damn yeah. it. Mm. Yeah, that. that was part of the plug for the new movie, yeah. the most recent one where he has the wings on. Yeah. <laughs> was it the caption like some people never learn or something like that? <laughs> what a sweet man. 
So as Steve-O explains in the magnificent oral history of the show that The Hollywood Reporter published in January, Jackass all started with skateboarding. In the 1980s, the skateboard industry was really at the mercy of the approval of mothers. So all the skateboard videos that came out in the early 1980s were very careful to be sugarcoated, not scare off mom. Like, they wouldn't show very violent falls off of skateboards. Turns out, a gentleman named Steve Rocco decided to break this mold and create a gnarly rough-and-tumble skate video upending this paradigm. His first video, which was called The Rubbish Heap, was the first video project of Spike Jones, who was then a photographer for Rocco's company, whom Steve-O called, quote, the Bill Gates of the skateboarding industry. <laughs> I mean, if Steve-O says it, it must be true. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he had this conglomeration of companies, and he was just a f***ing madman. And he would run these ads to promote his companies that were just out of control. And one of them was for this company called World Industries. It was a photo of a little kid with a gun in his mouth, and it said, World Industries, kill yourself. <laughs> This ad in particular raised the ire of two of the biggest skateboarding magazines, Thrasher and Transworld, both of whom rejected the ad. You know, all these kids are running around in Thrasher shirts. They don't know this history, no, man. No, you're, they doing don't. That, you're doing service journalism, service <laughs> podcasting right here, Alex and Jordan. So he started Big Brother magazine as a way to offer a more transgressive view of the skateboarding world. And from that magazine comes much of the Jackass crew. You've got producer Dmitry Elashkovic, director Jeff Tremaine was the mag's editor-in-chief, and he hired Jason Weemanakuna, who you might know, he's in everything Jackass does. Uh, and Jason Weeman was running magazines to the post office. Incidentally, Weeman says the only stunt he regrets turning down was being bitten on the nipple by a small alligator since it has become such an iconic moment for Johnny Knoxville. During Wee Man's long dark night of the soul, he's like, I really wish I'd let that gator bite my nipple. <laughs> yeah, this is definitely what Sinatra meant when he sang regrets. I've had a few in my way. Yeah, wow. <laughs> I mean, he de definitely makes our regrets sound pretty lame. Yeah. <laughs> That's his. Other big brotherers who joined Jackass include on-air personality Dave England, cameraman Rick Kosick, and photographer Sean Cliver. In the eighth or ninth issue, Chris Pontius, who I believe was Party Boy in the Jackass yep. franchise. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Maggie, you mentioned Party Boy. Around <laughs> Party Boy Chris Pontius. Maybe this was an early test run for that concept because by the eighth or ninth issue of, uh, <laughs> of Big Brother, he appeared in the mag fully nude, swinging his penis around in a maneuver he called the Whirly Bird. He was underage at the time. He has talked about this in multiple interviews. So, yeah, transgressive is a good word for Big Brother. <laughs> um, and then uh, now we must, but now we have to bring in the other crew. We're slowly assembling. Yeah. It's like the A team. We're assembling the different people. Like Ocean's Eleven. We got to have like a Soderbergh oh, style, yeah. like multiple, yeah, yeah. Yeah, multiple screens. <laughs> yeah. So meanwhile, across the country in Pennsylvania, Bam Margera, another skateboarder, was hanging out with his friends and filming them doing dumb stuff as part of skate videos distributed under the CKY name. CKY, Camp Kill Yourself. Mm -hmm. It was also the name of Bam's Brothers Band. And they found themselves pulled into the Big Brother orbit when their videos became cult hits. So that crew contributed jackass personalities Ryan Dunn, Brandon DiCamillo, Rob himself, and Ray Kion. Along with Bam, of course. Ryan Dunn, who tragically died in 2011 in a drunk driving accident, said... The guys out in L.A. took notice of us. They were wondering who these little jerks were in Westchester doing this ridiculous stuff. And honestly, so was I, because here I am growing up in suburban New York. There's a Westchester here. 
And I was like, wait, there's another Westchester? Westchester, Pennsylvania. Uh, it's this tiny town. I looked up the population before we hopped on this podcast. And there's like 20,000 people. So I was under the impression that like people were just like doing stunts all the time, pranking their parents. <laughs> and then I look it up and I see this like idyllic Pennsylvania yeah, town. Sleepy little like, oh Philly bedroom community. Yeah. So Jordan, you called it a Camelot for himbos? Yes, I did. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to add that uh, the jackass bit player Brandon DiCamillo set a world record uh, for the video game Mortal Kombat in 2008. He hit 10.2 million points, shattering this previous record by 3 million points. I think he held the record for a year. So, multi-talented bunch here. Yeah, good thing he didn't but break also- his thumbs. I was just going to say that. I was going to say, <laughs> wow, it's really a shame he went into stunt making for MTV. <laughs> Back to Big Brother, though. They were among the yeah. magazines that turned down or that responded to Knoxville's pitch. And he ended up saying they paid a lot better than Bikini Magazine, who I guess he also pitched. Bikini wanted to give him 10 cents a word. Big Brother gave him 50 cents a word. Um, and then we also found how Sivo uh, got in Big Brother himself. Maggie, you want to take that one? Yeah, but let me just say, listen, the way that these content farms are paying writers barely any money, 50 cents a word doesn't sound so bad. No, yeah, not at all. Right? <laughs> you got three digital journalists in this crowd, like, like salivating like, at the prospect wow. of 50 cents a word. 50 cents a word. You told that to Maggie 10 years ago, she'd be jumping. <laughs> anyway, so Steve's introduction to Big Brother was when the magazine was on a skate tour in Albuquerque. He was a big fan and he was determined to get into the magazine with a routine he was performing at the show. He recalls, I was working with this pro skateboarder. I was like, okay, this is going to be great. I'm going to spray hairspray all on my hair and light my head on fire. And that's the torch. (laughs) And you're going to have a mouthful of rubbing alcohol and you're the fire breather. So you'll use my head as the torch, but I'll have my own mouthful of alcohol. (laughs) Then I'm going to stick my hand into the fireball that you blow. So then everything's on fire. And then I'm going to do a backflip and simultaneously (laughs) breathe fire. But the thing was that the skateboarder blew the fireball point blank into my face. So my entire head was on fire from the shoulders up. And my best thinking in that moment was I better hurry up and do this fire breathing backflip. I mean, kudos to him committing to the bit, dude. I would have been like, my best thinking is stop, drop and roll, man. I went to elementary school. I I know what to do. So I do the fire breathing backflip and I come up short and my face is just fucking burning. I ended up with all the skin on my face rolled up like a joint in my oh, hand. Oh, that is oh. a descriptive, eloquent image. Ugh, terrible. But he got in the magazine. <laughs> yes, I got in the magazine based on that incident, which was called, and I quote, the Burning Boy Festival. Incredible. <laughs> That my, yeah. my other favorite bit about Steve-O this part of his life was that he was accepted into the Ringling Brothers and Barnum and & Bailey Clown College while still recuperating from having huge chunks of his skin burned off. Um, and the Clown College is free to get into, but you have to buy your own fancy clown suit. Steve-O already had one, so he likes to joke to this day that he went to Clown College on scholarship. <laughs> I mean, all the skin on your face is like very, very small price to pay. <laughs> exactly. I mean, that's what the pancake makeup's for. Cover that up. <laughs> oh. So Steve-O remembers Johnny Knoxville's initial pitch for this article, which was, I want to mace myself with red pepper spray. I want to get stunned by a 50,000 volt taser gun. 
And then I want to put on a bulletproof vest and shoot myself with a 38 caliber handgun. I just need the bulletproof vest and it's like (laughs) $5,000. Nobody would have anything to do with it except Tremaine. Tremaine would buy the stun gun, the pepper spray and the taser, while Knoxville used three hundred dollars his mom had given him for Christmas <laughs> that year for the vest. That is not what your yeah, mom wanted you to Maybe a nice new sweater, help out with some groceries, <laughs> but taser? Yeah. Bulletproof aye, vest. Aye, aye. So by the time they went to shoot the video, Larry Flint had just bought Big Brother. So they stopped a bunch of free porn they'd gotten under Knoxville's <laughs> bulletproof vest. The segment went out as part of the second Big Brother video. And Tremaine was convinced they had the roots of a TV show in their hands. Of all the things he'd go on to do, Johnny Knoxville told Vanity Fair the pepper spray is, quote, still one of the most painful things I've ever endured in my life because it's continuous hell for 15 to 20 minutes. (laughs) I think his quote in the video was, I feel like my eyes have gonorrhea. So I mean, descriptive, that, so eloquent. He's, you know, I don't know how, I, I don't think I've ever seen a single movie he's in with uh, as a dramatic actor, but his comic timing in that show is incredible. The best one, bar none, is when Butterbean beats the shit out of him in Tokyo, yeah. and he's like holding what's left of his face together, and you just hear him go, is Butterbean okay? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. So the crew basically decides to remove all the skateboarding from the Big Brother videos and use that as a demo reel to take to a bunch of networks. Their meeting with HBO went terribly. Tremaine says that the two women he met with were offended and just disgusted by what we had shown them. But MTV loved it and they wanted it right away. What I find interesting about this whole moment is that SNL wanted to give Johnny Knoxville a recurring like pranks and stunts segment, but they wouldn't take any of the rest of the gang. And so he was like, no, uh, it's all for one and one for all. And turned Lauren Michaels down, and he's regretted it ever since. Lauren chooses to believe. <laughs> Apparently, Lauren Michaels went to L.A. and took Johnny Knoxville to lunch at the Polo Room at the Beverly Hills Hotel, and offered them five minutes to, to do. I can't do a Lauren Michaels to do what you do, like in very Doctor Evil voice, which is just such a hilarious image of like Lauren Michaels and Johnny Knoxville at the Polo Room. Very funny. <laughs> it had to be a fly in a wall there. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, Van Toffler, president of MTV Networks at the time, told Maxim for their oral history, we just knew they were a bunch of knuckleheads out there who had a very high tolerance for stupidity and pain. (laughs) I mean, MTV had just ended the Tom Green show in March of 2000 and Jackass, I think, premiered in October. So I wonder if they were like looking to fill the Tom Green spot of like fratty, gross out, you know, messing with the public type humor stuff. Mm. That tracks. Um, So with the show greenlit, Tremaine then enlists the CKY contingent, and they are off to the races. The proverbial shopping cart races. Uh, (laughs) Dave England brought in his friend Aaron McGahee. I think that's how you pronounce that guy's name. I've never been 100% on it. Uh, And Preston Lacey also came aboard. He and Knoxville met while auditioning for a commercial together, which is just adorable. And he started out as a writer for, uh, for the show before they got him on camera, which I'm sure he regrets. In case their bond forged in blood and fecal matter and (laughs) vomit uh, doesn't make it immediately apparent, these guys were kindred spirits in a way that the rest of us will truly never understand. Uh, Jimmy Kimmel, who's a close friend of Johnny Knoxville, tells the story of visiting the jackass offices. He said, it was Knoxville and Spike Jones and a producer, and they all had black eyes. 
I, of course, wondered why they had black eyes, and they explained that they had to take their lot ID photos, the little card that gets you onto the production lot, and they wanted to make sure they had black eyes for their pictures. So they punched each other in the face (laughs) for an ID. This was not part of the movie or the show. This is just three crazy people. And, you know, Jackass wasn't even the first name that they wanted for it, apparently. Bam Margera's mom, April, told Rolling Stone that she was just all aghast at that title until Bam told her they originally just wanted to call it Asshole. (laughs) I love that because I recently rewatched the first movie and there is a skit where they put an alligator, a giant alligator in her kitchen yes. she comes home and opens the door and at the end of it she's more mortified by the thought that she might have said on camera <laughs> than the fact that these people put an alligator in her house and she's like oh my god what did i say oh my god it's very sweet she, yeah she's such a sweet woman interestingly enough they might have dodged this next problem by actually naming the show asshole because one of the lawsuits that was connected to the show was from an electrical lineman in montana with the legal name of jack ass two words <laughs> who in 2002 sued Viacom for plagiarizing and defaming his name. For $10 million. Born Bob Kraft, he changed his name in 1977, (laughs) years after his brother's death in a car accident. He created a cartoon character, Andy Ass, to crusade, which feels like could have gone a second round of notes there. Uh... (laughs) (laughs) To crusade against drunk driving via two websites and a not-for-profit organization called Hearts Across America. He promoted designated driving and personal responsibility with slogans like, be a smartass, not a dumbass. That one nailed it. No no notes on that. Yeah, that's good. Uh, His case against Viacom was eventually dismissed. Sorry about that, Jack. It is impossible to divorce the show from Corona, the Minutemen's song the show always began with, though, crucially, without lyrics. The lead singer and guitarist of the pioneering California punk band D. Boone, quote, wrote that one on a trip to Mexico. The band's bassist, Mike Watt, explains a louder sound this year. After all the drinking and the partying, the morning after, there's a lady picking up bottles to turn them in to get monies for her babies. It really touched him. Sadly, a year after the album, Corona was released on the certifiable punk classic Double Nickels on the Dime came out. Boone would die in a car accident. When I hear that, he plays those motifs, that kind of mariachi. I mean, it's just everything for me, Watt said. D. Boone, in that song, it really means a lot. Music was personal with us. It's how we were together, and then the punk movement let us do it in front of people. Maggie, did you read um, Our Band Could Be Your Life? No. Oh, man, there's such a chapter in The Minutemen on there. It is so really? cute. Mike Watt and D. Boone really loved each other. They're, they're oh. such a fascinating band to me. They are kind of a real outlier in that whole socal punk scene they were Mm -hmm. really smart guys they have a bunch of songs about like american interventionism in latin american countries like and it's just so funny to me that they picked uh corona to be the jackass theme song (laughs) um but yeah go listen to minute men i mean there's no way you can hear those chords without thinking of jackass it's so part of the dna yeah as you meditate on that We'll be right back with more Too Much Information after these messages. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is an NAACP and Webby award-winning podcast dedicated to all things mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. Here, we have the conversations that help Black women decipher how their past inform who they are today 
and use that information to decide who they want to be moving forward. We chat about things like how to establish routines that center self-care, what burnout looks and feels like, and defining what aspects of our lives are making us happy and what parts are holding us back. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Jon Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. The Daily Show podcast has everything you need to stay on top of today's news and pop culture. You get hilarious satirical takes on entertainment, politics, sports, and more from John and the team of correspondents and contributors. The podcast also has content you can't get anywhere else, like extended interviews and a roundup of the weekly headlines. Listen to The Daily Show, Ears Edition on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Predictably, for a concept that was moving from a loose conglomeration of pals shooting in their backyards and parking lots to a major network television show, there were some growing pains. Tremaine told Steve-O to compile some of his footage and send it to MTV, and not a single concept Steve-O had cleared the network. (laughs) He would say, we weren't allowed to play with fire, and I was always on fire. We weren't allowed to jump off stuff higher than a certain height, and I was always on fire and jumping off stuff from too high. MTV eventually assigned an OSHA rep to the show, which they said was the beginning of the end. Um, well, uh, now we get into some of these skits that never aired, although I did think they all came out on the DVD release. There was one called The Vomlet. Oh, I'm like gagging yeah. at you just saying the name. I'm like, oh. Have you seen it? Have you guys seen it? Do you nope. remember it? Okay. Intentionally. Dave, Dave England yeah. ate all the ingredients of an omelet, regurgitated them into a frying pan, and then fed it to Steve-O. MTV objected to it on the grounds that they hadn't shown that the omelet had been cooked to the proper cooking temperature of 160 degrees. And then they, I love that's where the buck stopped yeah, for them. Yeah, it's basic it's basic food safety. Come on. And uh then they uh, they made the other participants wear hazmat suits. So uh-huh. I, I have a question and I, I don't know which answer I want to hear. Was <laughs> Steve aware? that the omelet ingredients were vomited up by one of his colleagues. I, I, think, I don't know yeah. if it's better or worse that he didn't know, but I think he's, it's like happening in front of him. Oh, okay. I don't, I, I say that as if it's a relief. I, okay. <laughs> uh, 
These Occupational Safety and Health Administration officers, they really had their work cut out for them. One of the many things that they wouldn't let the group do was use actual human fecal matter during productions. So they had to substitute dog and horse poop for stuff like the Poo Cocktail Supreme, (laughs) where they slingshot Steve-O into the air while sitting in a porta potty in Jackass 3D. And for those of you keeping track at home, you can cross off human fecal matter off your TMI bingo card. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, If I can make it through this episode without puking, I'm going to be really impressed. Well, the next test is going to be the injury list. <laughs> uh, for me, it's all about the paper cuts. We'll get to that. The paper cuts. Oh, I can't. Oh, uh, yeah, no, 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 no. Okay. Um, another, a, another early prank that didn't make it to air. Uh, it's one of my favorites, actually. It's when Knoxville runs into a hardware store oh, yeah. where in an orange L.A. County jail jumpsuit with handcuffs and starts asking the people in the store for help with saws and axes. That's funny. Um, That's like almost quaint. That, that's funny. To- yeah. And but predictably, they called the cops uh, who rolled up and uh, held Knoxville at gunpoint out in the street. And then apparently the cop cruiser rolled into a lamp pole because the officer forgot to put it in park. So, I mean, even their arrests basically turned into jackass skits. I'll just say is, this is a, a lucky thing. All those boys were white. <clears throat> uh, Steve-O told Hot Ones recently that the first time he got arrested for a stunt, he was, quote, Charged formerly with a felony for obscenity in Louisiana for stapling my nutsack to my leg. I mean, while we're on the topic, let's do a quick Steve-O arrest lightning round, shall we? Yeah, uh, The second time Steve-O was arrested was in 2003 when he filmed himself swallowing a condom full of cannabis in order to get it past authorities while flying to Sweden. Who among us? <laughs> but then he regurgitated it live on stage. I'm not really sure at what point he was arrested. Probably, I guess, after vomiting up weed on stage. That probably would do it now that I think about it. Um, two months later, he was arrested for disorderly conduct after urinating on potato chips in public during a Lollapalooza tour stop in Pennsylvania. Were they Uts? Were they, were they Pennsylvania <laughs> potato chips? No, they were Martins. I mean... No, they were Hartleys. Oh... No, you're, you're a central PA boy. Come yeah, on. Yeah, I'm trying to figure out what kind of uh, P- Pennsylvania, who I have to avenge for doing that. Martins, Hartleys, <laughs> us. Um, and then he also faced a fine for altering the sign for SeaWorld on the San Diego Highway to read SeaWorld Sucks in 2015. I guess because he's an animal rights activist and he wanted to, in his words, put his foot down for Shamu. Another one of these skits that never made it to air was one in which Johnny Knoxville was taped into a cardboard box full of pillows and pushed down some concrete stairs. Uh, Another was when he shot himself with the Smith and Wesson. And the third one was, as Steve-O explained to First We Feast, quote, he said, I'm Johnny Knoxville and I'm going to get hit by a car real soon, (laughs) which is maybe my favorite introduction to one of these. It's so perfect. As as Steve-O says, the car just came flying. He went through the windshield, rolled over. They asked him, what were you thinking when you got hit by a car? And his answer was, I wore two pairs of jeans so that I'd be safe. I, I love That's comedic time. <laughs> yeah, exactly, man. I love the whole hello, my name is... I guess they apparently got that from yes. Johnny Cash, from like listening to, to live at Oh, Wilson that Prison. tracks. Yeah. Um, I just love that because there's been so many times in my life where I'm doing really mundane stuff. And I'm like, hi, I'm Maggie Coglin, and this is washing the dishes. <laughs> like, just... You got to just power through it. You set yourself up with that little uh, delivery and it makes things a lot more fun. It does. It really, it's the little things. It's the energy, yeah. (laughs) Um, The show is obviously a runaway success. Following its second episode in October 2000, MTV notched its highest Sunday ratings in its history. 
but with that came increased scrutiny on what the gang was doing. Yeah, the original warning at the start of the show was pretty lighthearted. It said, Jackass features stunts performed by professionals and or total idiots. MTV insists that neither of you or any of your dumb little buddies attempt the dangerous crap in this show. But then they changed it to something a little less flippant once they started getting words of kids hurting themselves by imitating these stunts. Yeah, without getting too ghoulish, here's a quick rundown. Um, January 2001, a Connecticut teen named Eric Lynn accidentally sets himself on fire, imitating his stunts. In 2002, a 15-year-old from Albuquerque died after being thrown from a car and dragged underneath it, attempting to imitate a stunt from the first Jackass movie, according to Albuquerque police. In 2011, Michael Smith used his SUV to tow his friend who was sitting behind it in a shopping cart. And unfortunately, the cart hit a bump, catapulted his friend into the air, and he died. His father had said that the kid had been a jackass fan. Uh, this is probably the most sinister one. This kid from New Zealand, Matt Dillon Shannon, uh, was sentenced to three years in prison in November 2012 on a charge of causing grievous bodily harm for his role in an incident from the previous year in which a 16-year-old was doused with gasoline and set on fire. Uh, Shannon's lawyer claimed that this was inspired by the Jackass series, despite the fact that no such stunt ever aired on the show. So maybe jury's out on that one. Well, jury's not out. The guy's in prison, so, or was in prison. So jury's on the internet, jury's out. Steve-O on the Hot Boxing with Mike Tyson podcast in June, which <laughs> to be, a, we were a fly on that wall. We got the podcast, but when the cameras stop rolling, that's when I want to see Steve-O and Mike Tyson hanging out. He said, we were genuinely worth vilifying because back then they didn't have YouTube or video on the internet and we were legitimately a bad influence. When Jackass came out, little kids were showing up in hospitals all over the country and maybe the world because they saw us doing this crazy and wanted to do it themselves. So it being an election year, Connecticut Senator Joe Lieberman. <laughs> yes, Joe Lieberman, new friend of the pod, Joe Lieberman. Everyone uh, who, who appears on the podcast, whether or not they did a good or bad thing, has become a friend of the pod, by the way. <laughs> you all may remember him as Al Gore's running mate in 2000. He singled out Jackass and MTV in a statement decrying the state of film and television, saying it is irresponsible for MTV to air these kinds of stunts on a program clearly popular with young teens. But Steve-O said there wasn't ever an actual big lawsuit, but there was just the fear of one. So MTV's reaction was to start not approving for us to film. Chris Pontius gave an example. He said, if we were filming and we had to step off the sidewalk and you couldn't see the street was blocked off, they wouldn't let us use the shot. Uh, Dave England would say after every single episode, we'd get a list of at least 12 to 15 notes from the lawyers saying, you can no longer do this, 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 or this. Uh, according to Johnny Knoxville, the network would no longer let them jump off of anything taller than four feet. Um, and NTV moved the show to later in the evening from 9 p.m. to 10 p.m. to try to get a, an older audience. And plus, I think just the network went quiet on Jackass and pulled back on promoting the show, according to Spike Jones. And this uh, defanging, I guess, is probably the only word I can think of for it, would ultimately spell the end of the show. And that's why they ended up moving into movies where they could do more and have it be rated R so they wouldn't have to worry about kids of an impressionable age seeing what they were doing. Yeah. So now we have to get into some of the darker side of Jackass. It's not all bulls ramming into your testicles and <laughs> upended porta potties. There's also a downside. Um, Aaron, Aaron McGee told the Post in 2018. Was this the article that Chelsea wrote, Maggie? 
I believe so, yeah. yes. That he had had 25 surgeries as a result of his work on the franchise, including nine knee surgeries and three broken backs. Uh, Rab himself had to pull out of Jackass, he said in the same piece. I didn't do the second and third movies. I got paranoid about friends, and I got darker into drugs and drinking and wanting to be alone. And this is definitely something that many other members of the cast have struggled with, most notably and publicly, Bam Margera. I mean, it's very sad because out of all of the Jackass guys, Bam had all these spinoffs. Do you remember yep. that? He had like Bam's Unholy Union, which was supposed to follow him to his wedding and, you know, in and out of reality TV stuff. So basically Bam was in his early 20s when Jackass first began. If you watch like wow. the early stuff, he looks so young. Yeah, And he's had quite a rough couple of years. He lost his best friend and fellow member of the Jackass crew, Ryan Dunn, in a drunk driving accident in June 2011. And since then, it seems like he's been arrested and in and out of rehab repeatedly, and TMZ and other sites are kind of clocking his every move. Uh, leading up to Jackass Forever's release back in May of this year, there was a ton of drama surrounding Bam. He took issue with being fired from the film because of his addiction issues, and he sued Johnny Knoxville and the company as a result. Yeah, he posted these really upsetting videos to Instagram that I think have since been deleted, claiming that he was subjected to these... Uh, in his eyes, pretty draconian rules after being forced to sign a wellness pledge. And this included blowing into a breathalyzer three times a day, submitting to a urinalysis test twice a week, having his hair follicles tested on a regular basis, and taking anti-depression medication every morning while on a FaceTime call with a doctor hired by the studio. Uh, plus, apparently checking into not one, but two treatment facilities with his own money. And he alleged he was fired from the production after testing positive for Adderall, which he says he takes to treat his attention deficit disorder. So all in all, a really complicated, unpleasant, sad situation. So back to that hotboxing with Mike Tyson interview that we referenced earlier. Steve-O Steve explained how the Jackass crew felt about Bam being let go from the movie, saying... The way that Jackass treated Bam by making him take drug tests, by telling him that his contract required him to be sober for the movie, what that was, was that they f***ing loved him. They cared about him. And it's the same exact people who organized an intervention which saved my life. Yeah, I mean, I, I really do feel for the guy. Uh, he said that one of his relapses occurred when he went on a trip to Colombia in August 2018. He hailed a cab at the airport and the driver pulled a gun on him. And he didn't speak English, so this driver apparently took out his phone and typed, empty your wallet, and typed it into Google Translate, just held out the phone for Bam to read while also pointing a gun at him with the other hand. So, I mean, yeah, poor guy. He's apparently after this trauma that he, he uh, kind of sparked a relapse. So, in a recent GQ profile, Johnny Knoxville gets uh, apparently visibly emotional when Bam is mentioned. So, clearly, they care about the guy a great deal. So, prayers up for Bam. Addiction was one of the occupational hazards for the Jackass crew. Johnny Knoxville himself has speculated that the work that they do attracts a certain kind of adrenaline junkie who is often more susceptible to substance abuse. But from a practical standpoint, the frequent injuries result in frequent prescriptions for painkillers, which, as we all know, living in America in 2022, <laughs> are notoriously difficult to wean off of. A fascinating and harrowing page six story by Chelsea Hirsch from 2018 featured this insight from one time jackass performer, Chris Robb, AKA Rob himself. If you got hurt, you were like, oh, I can just take a pill for that. I broke my ankle, I need this. And then you justify it to yourself. If you broke your arm, you need another painkiller too. And before you know it, you're just so caught up in it. 
then what happens is people are like, Rob, you have a drinking problem. You're doing too many drugs. And you're like, I'm not as bad as this person and this person. And you're surrounded by a bunch of drug addicts and alcoholics, and you're just pointing the fingers at each other. Pretty dark. Yeah, Steve-O had been, has been sober for like 14 years, I think I read, in the press run-up for the new film. So, mm-hmm. good for him. Um, back into the lighter realm of <laughs> genital mutilation. Um, <laughs> it should come as no surprise that Johnny Knoxville has suffered a lot over the years. As he said many times, half-ass stuntmen don't think long-term. He suffered 16 concussions throughout this franchise, and a 2021 study from Nova Legal Funding claimed that the Jackass crew has accumulated around $24 million in medical costs over the course of their careers. This study is really incredible. They actually go line by line by each cast member itemizing their injuries. It's pretty thorough. Uh, Predictably, Johnny Knoxville has the most. His medical expenses cost an estimated $8.66 million following a number of extremely intense injuries, including an alligator bite, which cost hundred grand, the 16 concussions, which all totaled $4 million, and a scalped head, $150,000. grand. i do not know what that was for. Mm. Uh, his single most expensive bill, however, was one of his more recent injuries during filming for Jackass Forever, in which he suffered a brain hemorrhage that cost $2.5 million during a stunt involving a bull, which we'll talk more about shortly. The comedic masochist, as he calls himself, has been hit by a riot control mine knocked unconscious by a 400-pound heavyweight boxer called Butterbean, which you mentioned earlier, and mauled by bulls on multiple occasions. And let's not forget the time while he was filming Jackass 3D that he had one of his teeth knocked out by a flying sex toy. (laughs) The boxing thing, I guess, had serious long-term effects. The concussion from getting punched by Butterbean gave him vertigo, and for years he got the spins whenever he turned to make turns in his car when he was driving. And so for years, he had to take turns really slow. And thankfully, I guess he got medication to correct it. But damn. Uh, Yeah, another injury that stuck with Knoxville, and this is funny, didn't even happen in the course of a jackass event. Is it funny? Oh, (laughs) tragic. Um, Yeah, uh, so a friend was filming an MTV tribute to Evil Knievel, one of Knoxville's heroes. And this was in 2008. Uh, And he tells GQ that he was visiting the set one day and quote i wasn't even supposed to do anything i think i just showed up that day and someone kind of threw out that i should try and backflip a motorcycle (laughs) which warning sign (laughs) if somebody just pitches that to you on the visit your first day to a set you want to try and uh flip a motorcycle (laughs) no Uh, no the answer is always no (laughs) and i'm like oh yeah i got that (laughs) (laughs) Of course. Uh, He says, let's give it a whirl. What's the worst that can happen? It's not like I'm going to break my dick or something. And then you get the narrator voice. This is exactly what happened. Uh, The stunt coordinator warned Knoxville, who could not drive a motorcycle. This both surprises me, but also doesn't surprise me for the sake of this anecdote. Of course he would agree, despite the fact that he can't ride the vehicle. The guy says, whatever you do, just don't let go of the bike in midair. Because it's heavier than you. It'll, it can fall on you. Uh, and during the fourth take of the stunt, that is exactly what happened. Knoxville told People Magazine, the bike goes about 15 feet in the air, comes down, and breaks off the handlebar on my crotch. The doctor said a couple centimeters down, and it would have been out of commission. But I've had two children <laughs> since then, so it's in great working order. <laughs> 
On his way to the hospital, he apparently moaned to paramedics, I injured the only body part that means anything to me. (laughs) Oh, man. Part of his recovery for that was self-administering a catheter twice a day, every day, for the next three and a half years. (sighs) I don't know if this is the best or the worst time to ask this question, but does this man have an Emmy? Because... I almost feel like he kind of deserves it. Did the Oscar noms come out yet? Is Jackass Forever up for uh, uh, Best Picture and Actor and Supporting Actor and Actress? And it should sweep, might, honestly. Might be too early. It's been yeah. a pretty weak year for movies. Um, yeah, give it to on the, give it to Jackass. <laughs> on the slightly sweeter side, uh, Johnny Knoxville's love of Evil Knievel is kind of adorable. Uh, Evil had a great expression that Johnny Knoxville co-opted. Nobody wants to see me die but they don't want to miss it if I do. <laughs> That's pretty good. I mean, I'm sure it'll be on this tombstone. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> uh, which will be in the shape of like the crossed crutches and the skull. Yeah. Um, the motorcycle incident wasn't the first time that trying a new skill backfired on, on old Johnny Knox. Uh, in the show's second episode, he attempted to jump a portion of the LA river on roller skates despite having never ridden roller skates before. And you can see this, all the B-roll from that is him stumbling around like a baby deer uh, on roller skates, which are not, there's there's a learning curve to them. He fractured his ankle and uh, consequently for the rest of that season can be seen in a cast and on crutches. (sighs) And then there was a time, I actually can't remember if it was that season or one of the movies that he super glued his face onto Bam's father Phil's hairy chest. Only to realize after the fact that he couldn't breathe anything but super glue fumes and nearly passed out. Just such a comedy of errors. Oh, Maggie, do you want to tell us about the bull? Oh, yes. Please. Sure. Oh, it would be my pleasure. <laughs> and uh, when making the most recent film in which he has a run-in, pun intended, <laughs> with a bull, a.k.a. that bull is named Mr. Mean. Oof. And so, listen, to, to quote, who is it, Maya Angelou, when someone tells you who they are the first time, believe them. <laughs> His name is Mr. Mean. Do not get around that bull. Okay. I was waiting to see who was going to bring Maya Angelou into the conversation around Jackass. I'm happy it was our guest. Oh, yeah, excuse me. I believe it's when someone shows you mm. who they are. Not tells you, you know. Anyway, so... He has a run with Mr. Mean, this bull who sends him flying into the air. And Johnny told Howard Stern this year that he suffered a brain hemorrhage and a neurosurgeon tested his attention after he sustained the injury. And he only scored 17 out of 100. Yeah, that's 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 really not good. That's bad. (laughs) Yeah. And honestly, I wouldn't be telling people that if you're trying to continue to pitch projects in Hollywood. That's true. Um. It may be worth mentioning that he obtained this injury while trying to do a magic trick for Mr. Mean the Bull. It's a great scene. I mean, it's yeah. <laughs> it's so funny. I, mean, I feel so bad laughing, but it's so funny. <laughs> In the press cycle for Jackass Forever, Johnny Knoxville talked extensively about his apparent brain damage. Those are his words. He told Howard Stern... My cognitive abilities were in steep decline after that hit, which he's classified as the worst injury of his career. He also said the injury not only impacted his focus, but also made him severely depressed and over-focused on things, which he thankfully treated with a combination of medication and therapy. But the injury understandably freaked him out, and he said that Jackass Forever is almost certainly the last Jackass film. 
He told GQ, I can't afford to have any more concussions. I can't put my family through that. And, uh, God, Johnny Knoxville and Bulls. I mean, you know, he's like, it's like <laughs> he's Captain Ahab and the Bulls are his Moby Dick. He's faced off against them in numerous stunts dating back to his big brother days. And he said in the same GQ interview, this truly beautiful quote about Bulls. You know exactly what you're going to get with Bulls. Very much like Maya Angelou said. They hate you. They hate anything that moves. If you're moving, they get very angry. And whether you're a person or an inanimate object, if it moves, Bulls want to make it stop moving. (laughs) But he also, you know, as with Captain Ahab and Moby Dick, there's a begrudging respect between... Johnny Knoxville and the Bulls. Uh, these Bulls are, he he, res, he relates to them in a way. Johnny Knoxville says that he relates to Bulls in a certain way because they are, in his words, born performers. There's a respect he has for them. I don't think it goes the other way around. That's fair. <laughs> it's not mutual. Fair. I agree. Um, he is not alone when it comes to grotesque injuries, uh, however, to the bathing suit area. Uh, Aaron McGee has a testicle-related trauma story. Related to the stunt that he did in Jackass Forever, he said, quote, the doctor said I probably won't be able to have children because I exploded my testicle. <sighs> Just gonna let that hang there. And then the blood... No, let, me, let me rephrase that. Let me rephrase that. <laughs> it doesn't hang so well anymore. Uh, and then the blood was going into where the semen is, he told Screen Rant in February. Uh, and once that happens, it kills the semen forever, and then you'll never have a child. But, happy ending, I proved him wrong because I had a child while filming Jackass Forever. Ouch. I can't I can't really articulate why, but I read that entire quote, like a Blink-182 song lyric. Like, I heard Tom DeLonge in my head singing that. Huh. Yeah, and the name of that song would be Happy Ending. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, my God. I love that the first Jackass movie and maybe even the future ones, they weren't even insured as a whole production, I'm guessing, because that would have cost too much. They just went stunt by stunt. And Steve-O, the show's resident vomiter, revealed during a Reddit AMA that all of his gross-out food and vomit segments led him to contract something called Barrett's esophagus, which he described as, quote, a precancerous condition in my throat <sighs> slash esophagus for which I blame all my vomiting, drug abuse, and generally bad living in the past few years. Um, they f***ed around, and now they're in the find-out <laughs> portion of the program. <laughs> um, you know, there really seems to be no limit to what the Jackass crew won't do, but apparently they do have a limit. Steve-O told Vice that he won't try anything that would put my spinal cord or my life in jeopardy. Paralysis and death are not on the table. Johnny Knoxville tries to avoid cold weather or cold water. He says he hates Speedos because he's too self-conscious. Um, <laughs> he summed up his stunt preferences by saying, quote, I don't do too much gross stuff. I like more of the things that deal with gravity and blunt force trauma. Blunt force trauma is his kink. Okay. Um... <laughs> Bam Margera, meanwhile, quote, felt weird about anything that required him to get naked. It's very sweet that these guys, like, actually... They're, like, still chased their, in oh, a certain way. Yeah, <laughs> chased. There, there are boundaries here. Yeah. That's what we're learning. And, and Bam also says he prefers not to deal with bulls, presumably after a career of watching Johnny Knoxville deal with bulls. Um, and Chris Pontius said, quote, I don't ever want to do anything mean. Oh, it's supposed to just be mean to us. That's the only rule. That's very nice. Uh, we touched on this earlier. 
I just have two words for you all right now. Paper cuts. Yeah. Ugh, it's so that bad. one was bad. I put my hands over my eyes during the yeah. rewatch. Maggie, what's your what's your least favorite? It's paper cuts. Oh, it is? Sure. Okay. But also, I'm so squeamish and uh Anything with bodily fluids or that of an animal, I'm instantly gagging and having to cover my eyes and then looking through them yeah. and giggling a little well, bit. Well, you guys are not alone. The cameraman Lance Bangs, uh, who has seen a lot more than either of you two have, nearly <laughs> passed out as a result of that piece. And fun fact, Lance Bangs is married to Corinne Tucker, who was in Slater Kitty. I did not know that. Yeah, I love that. Mm-hmm. Um, mine is, you know, it's mine's Wasabi Snooters. Really? Oh my god, yes. Just because there's so much puking. Hard. Like he is just immediately uh, like curled up on the floor like retching repeatedly. I was just like, what did you expect? <laughs> I I have a I shouldn't share this in public. I shouldn't share this to either of you, my dear friend and my new friend who's still forming a new impression of me. <laughs> but I will. Um it was finals week, my senior year of college, and I had one of those awful like headaches where you just like can't think everything in my sinuses and head was just clogged and i was desperate like i had all the stuff to do for you know final studying and final papers and stuff and so i went down to the dining hall and got sushi and just was having you know dinner while i tried to work and i saw the big glob of wasabi and thought i need to clear my sinuses out oh no <sighs> take one for the team i didn't realize that it was like the super concentrated wasabi <laughs> Like, not the kind that they have at restaurants, but just, like, the kind where you really only need a little bit. I came to about five minutes later on my bathroom <laughs> floor. Um, yeah. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with more Too Much Information in just a moment. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is an NAACP and Webby award-winning podcast dedicated to all things mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. Here, we have the conversations that help Black women decipher how their past inform who they are today and use that information to decide who they want to be moving forward. We chat about things like how to establish routines that center self-care, what burnout looks and feels like, and defining what aspects of our lives are making us happy and what parts are holding us back. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. 
and of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. And for all of that, the show didn't pay very well, at least to start. Uh, Steve-O, on his own YouTube channel in 2019, said, I didn't make very much money on the first season. I got paid per bit that I shot, and if the bit was dangerous where I could get hurt, I was to be paid $500. If it was just kind of funny, I was to be paid $200. At the end of the day, I made less than $1,500 after taxes for the entire first season of Jackass. No residuals, no nothing. And by the time the show came out, that money was long gone. <laughs> God. MTV, man. I mean, this is like how MTV paid the Osbournes like 5000 an episode for the first season of the Osbournes. And even worse, Jersey Shore, the cast members were paid in $200 gift cards <laughs> to the Shore <laughs> store each week. And they didn't, they didn't even get real money. It was like a company, um, it was like a company mining town. <laughs> <laughs> they, they paid them in stuff you could only spend in town. Yeah, I'm like, what, like sunglasses with, like, Italian flags on them and stuff. Um, I guess even when Jackass made the movies, Steve-O said that he only got paid 65 grand for the first one, which grossed 80 million. Ugh, I hope they negotiated for points on the rest of those. I mean, I hope they're represented by powerful Asians at this stage in their career, because... Yeah, I'll tell you one thing. It's been a long time. At this stage in their career, Johnny Knoxville can still get it. I remember seeing that GQ spread. He's just full on Silver Fox. I was like, yeah. hmm, the lady will have two. Um, yeah. I just love him so much. I always thought he was a real cutie, cutie patootie. And then uh, he's a real big. Yeah. yeah. Maggie, walk us through the fame years. <laughs> oh, man. Those were glorious years to have an interest in celebrity and to later go into it as a career, you know? Uh, so Jeff Tremaine allowed that after the success of the show, some people were handling success better than others. (laughs) (laughs) Surprising to no one. Steve-O was all about fame. He wanted it so bad, whereas Pontius could give two shits. He didn't change at all. And Bam was already kind of a little celebrity in his world. So this brings me to my favorite part of Jackass lore, which is Jessica Simpson and Johnny Knoxville's relationship. Maybe ship. Which I had, maybe ship situation ship we don't really know what happened between them except in 2020 she gave us the gift that was her memoir open book which i was like locked in mm-hmm. with during the pandemic so i read and i read and i read and it's just amazing so in 2005 johnny knoxville starred in dukes of hazard in the remake uh, as Bo duke and you might remember jessica simpson playing daisy duke in the film 
And so off camera, they struck off a pretty interesting relationship. While the movie was being made, Jessica Simpson was, of course, married to Nick Lachey of 98 Degrees fame. Their relationship was super big for the TRL and the tabloid crowd. And they dated for years before marriage. And you might remember she spoke about waiting until she was married to Nick to lose her virginity. But in her memoir, she talks about some very romantic scenarios with Johnny. I'm going to read a bit from it. So she's recounting an instance in which she is kind of pouring her heart out to Johnny Knoxville here. She said, I just feel like I'm going through so many changes. I said to Johnny one night over scotch. It's hard. Nah, change is easy, he said. Staying the same is a lot harder on you. I lifted the Macallan to toast that and held it in the air, lifting it higher to see him through the amber of the drink. Don't be looking at me through whiskey-colored glasses, lady, he said. Too, I know. (laughs) Too late, I said. Let's just promise to be there for one another in our imminent and enduring times of trouble and thunder. Deal, I said. So this is cute and sets the scene. And then later in the book, I'm going to read you another clip. She basically tells her best friend, Casey Cobb, her biggest secret, which is, quote, that I was still in touch with Johnny Knoxville. We wrote these flowery love letters back and forth, often at night with Nick passed out in bed (gasps) next to me. Thank you. That is the appropriate response, Alex Eigel. I'm clutching my pearls and you can't see me right now, listeners. We talked about music and I would listen to the Johnny Cash songs he suggested just to feel like we were still together. Whenever I wanted to read Casey some gushy letter from him, she would refuse. It was like Johnny and I were prison pen pals. (laughs) Two people who wanted so much to be with each other, but were kept apart by bars, by our stars, by our respective spouses. I would delete every email convinced Nick would find out. I rewrote each text and email in my need journal, the sanctity of which my husband respected, even if neither of us were doing a good job of respecting the rest of our marriage. Wow, that is right? be- That's, I felt something. That hits, yeah. <laughs> I just love that detail that he was like her safe space oh. while she was going through all this drama with Nick Lachey. I sadly uh, read somewhere on the trivia section of dukes of hazard that he pitched for the shot where the camera does the pan up from her legs for the introductory shot of her so maybe you know he had kind of a mixed influence on that but uh you know he took a lie detector test on uh stern yes on one of the stern's interview he took a lie detector test about jessica simpson it's worth reading the book i'm just saying open book by jessica simpson is like one of the top three celebrity memoirs. In the well, game. the Whoa, so on high praise on Stern, he uh, Stern asked him whether or not they had sex, asked her if they had ever kissed, and then a third one that's gross and I don't want to go into it. And Johnny Knoxville said no to all of the question. However, the polygraph test indicated that while he did not sleep with her, it went off when he said he didn't kiss her. So mm. I imagine they had this Ooh. like whole. Uh, Heathcliff on the moor thing where they like (laughs) embrace passionately and then they're like no we can't I love that oh man Um, Steve-O for his part once told Howard Stern that he uh, pleasured himself while laying in bed next to to Nicole Richie once I I, I would just move on Uh, we'll just move on Uh, (laughs) Steve-O's thirst for fame came with an attendant thirst for everything Knoxville told Access Hollywood in 2010, we'd all had our eye on Steve-O because he'd gotten to a really bad point in doing all kinds of crazy drugs. During a 
2019 interview on In-Depth with Graham Bensinger, Steve-O claimed that he started drinking at just 12 years old, saying that his mother would give him, quote, just a little booze on planes to stop him from crying. <laughs> and also during this interview, he mentioned the time during the depths of his addiction that he resorted to snorting cocaine that had been mixed with his dealer's HIV-positive blood. I don't even know how you, let's not even get to the mechanics of that. He told Stern in 2007 that he once injected five ounces of vodka intravenously. Oh, I can't deal with IVs. No, no, that's my line. But no, but don't worry, because there was a nurse there and she told him it would be fine. That's uh, three and a third shots, which isn't a ton, but probably getting that directly into your bloodstream would (laughs) get you where you needed to be. (laughs) Um, Oh. They they eventually, this is really sweet, what Steve-O mentioned earlier, uh, Knoxville assembled 10 of our closest friends, big guys, and went to his house and said, Steve-O, you know, we're here to take you to rehab. And if you don't go, I've instructed the guys to knock you out and then we'll take you. And he's like, okay, dude, I'll go. As we mentioned earlier, he notched 14 years of sobriety earlier this year, which congratulations, Steve-O. Really, I am. I do not say this with sarcasm. I am very proud of you. We'll talk more about this later, but the the, the whole element of camaraderie in this show is something yeah. that I think is the secret ingredient that isn't touched on enough. The fact that these guys clearly care so much about each other. There is there is a weird perverse sweetness there for all the you know all the abuse. Oh man, I thought of my new least favorite skit. It's from Forever. It was the Silence of the Lambs one where they're all in the dark. Oh, God, it's terrible. It is really bad. It's because is, is it McGahee who's like locked in at the end and he just doesn't know it's over? And he's like, is it is it done now? Are we still doing it? Is it done now? I like I that my heart went out to him in that moment. Uh, I mean, it's like trauma bonding, yeah. essentially, this camaraderie. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, incidentally, that scene in the first movie where Steve-O gets a tattoo from Henry Rollins while they're off-roading. That was supposed to be Motley Crue bassist uh, Nikki Six, for which Steve-O initially prepared for that scene by snorting coke off a picture of Six. <laughs> I want to launch a secondary podcast to figure out why Nikki Six wasn't involved with that, because that would have been mm. incredible. Uh, I guess Steve-O was terrified of ultimately getting this tattoo from Henry Rollins because he was uh, dating and I'll use that as the polite euphemism, uh, Henry's ex, and he thought he was going to get beaten up by Henry. That's a reasonable fear. It's a very, very reasonable fear. So MTV was caught off guard along with everyone else when Knoxville, put off by the increasing restrictions on the show, announced his intention to quit in an interview with the Knoxville News Centennial in August 2001. Way to give your home paper a scoop. I like <laughs> he that. supports local he journalism. Supports, yeah. He supports local journalism, Alex. You knew I was going to say it. <laughs> He told the paper, MTV will continue to air repeats of the 24 existing episodes of Jackass, but will edit out the segments that have been protested. The most objectionable things will be taken out. All the funny things will be gone. I mean... Was he wrong? Yeah. Anyway, Steve-O later told The Hollywood Reporter, when we, all the supporting cast members, learned of this, we were like, um, what do you mean, Knoxville? What are you talking about? Spike Jones told Vice in 2017 that a concession MTV made to them at the beginning came back to bite them. We set it up so we could cancel the show whenever we wanted, and I don't think they remembered that. <laughs> I don't think most TV shows have that, where the producers can cancel the show, but we did. They're just, like, frantically flipping back the contract, <laughs> like, we, we signed what? <laughs> 
And we touched on this earlier. This is the part when they started developing the first movie with MTV Films, which they could rate R, uh, so they wouldn't have to answer to the strict television standards and practices department, and kids wouldn't see it, basically. However, they did get quite the get for the show's finale, and that was Brad Pitt. I forgot this. (laughs) It's amazing, right? He was saying he really wanted to do something with us, Johnny Knoxville told MTV News in September 2006. We were filming the last episode. At the time, we didn't even have any ideas, just that he wanted to be on the show. <laughs> I love how much Brad Pitt loved, like, 2000s, 2000s era, era MTV, MTV programming. Yes. <laughs> I mean, is this how he also got on Friends? <laughs> he just wanted to be on? Yeah. With Jennifer Anderson? You don't say no to that jawline. Didn't he also, like, go up to Jack Osborne at one of the VMAs or something and say, like, oh, yeah, man, Jack, love your show. Yeah, me and Jen, like, got all the tapes from MTV, and we watch them at night in bed before you go to sleep. And just blew, like, tween Jack's mind. Yeah, so cute. What did they go with, Maggie? (laughs) So they... So they settle on a skit in which they kidnap Brad Pitt in full view of a number of bystanders. Imagine just like being a bystander and like Brad Pitt is getting kidnapped. You're like, should I help? Is he too famous? Can you do an oral history of that skit? Yeah, it deserves one for sure. But Knoxville told Hot Ones that Pitt was also game for a much more dangerous idea. He said, we had him for one night. We were doing these go-karts, bombing the hill on Vine. And we were all like, oh, we don't really want him to get hurt because he's Brad Pitt. (laughs) But he did not care. He was ready to do it. He was the first one in the middle of the street. We're like, no, 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 no. Don't do that. But he didn't care. (laughs) Is it, is it, is Vine a Steve? I don't see this where I'm. Yes. Oh, that's up by, uh, by the, the Capitol Records building that slopes down towards sunset. That's quite a hill. (laughs) Oh, good for Brad. Uh, one of, yeah, someone who didn't get to be on Jackass, though, uh, Bruce Dern. His Once Upon a Time in Hollywood co-star. Yeah. did George Spawn in that? Yeah. yeah, and didn't he win for um, uh, Nebraska? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he wanted to be in Jackass forever, and they couldn't make it work, because <laughs> he's older than dirt. He's a, a big old bag of bones. What are you doing? What are you doing? <laughs> be nice. What are you doing, Bruce? Come on. <laughs> Just know your role, man. Who did they go with instead of Bruce? They had like Machine Gun Kelly. They had like Eric Andre. Like we couldn't get Bruce Dern in yeah. somewhere. He would have died. Any one of those things would have killed him. <laughs> Why didn't they get him to do like one of the bad grandpa things, but like actually yeah. just not oh, using. Yeah. <laughs> it's just Bruce Dern. <laughs> like, could you pick, a... you know, honestly, could you pick Bruce Dern? No, I, apart I, from I, like a lineup I of other grandpas. Like all not. respect to Bruce no. Dern. Well, I know we were going to mostly focus on the TV show. Uh, we're 90 minutes into this, and we all have lives, but we should touch briefly on the movies. I don't have a life, uh, which was the logical extension of the franchise after it became too controversial for television. The head of MTV Films, a subsidiary of Paramount, also owned by Viacom, pitched Spike Jones on the idea after the show ended abruptly. Jeff Tremaine never thought his, quote, stupid little show would translate to the big screen, and uh, neither did Paramount. <laughs> uh, Steve-O says that Paramount funded and produced the movie, but did so through a fake name or ghost company. <laughs> so he said, if anybody died, they wouldn't even be affiliated with it. And then wow. once we were done, they found out about it in air quotes and bought it. This is like the studio equivalent of like, you can't tell anyone we're dating. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Yes, this is the studio equivalent of a situation ship. (laughs) (laughs) So they shot the majority of footage in Japan where they were not as famous and they wouldn't be recognized when they did their stunts in public. 
Most of the later episodes were filmed on private property, plus the comparatively lax Japanese privacy laws meant they didn't have to blur out people's faces. Loomis Fall came up with the idea of the Night Panda segment because he wanted to go to Japan. The crew, I know, it seems, you know, convenient, making a movie, want to go to Japan, here you go. The crew agreed to bring him along simply because nobody had the heart to tell him that pandas are actually from China and not Japan. The scenes in Japan feature, you know, maybe a fan favorite, the wasabi snooters. So simple, so effective, so stupid. (laughs) Incidentally, that skit took place during Johnny Knoxville's birthday dinner. Ugh, um, <laughs> what are we? What are we? Got? There are a few things I like more than when you your groans of disgust on the show. I've heard it with American Pie. I've heard it with Margaritaville, and now I've heard it with Wasabi Snooters. And really, that one it just, just just lights my soul. Aflame. I just I, that's like burned. Like watching that on my my home DVD player with like my parents. Just fully. wait, wait. Why would you possibly watch this with your parents? My dad thought it was funny. And then my mom oh, would like okay. came in and was kind of like, oh, these idiots, this is funny. And then at the second it got to the gross stuff, they were both just like, whatever, son. <laughs> I was 18. They couldn't stop me. Um, speaking of iconic jackass moments like the Wasabi Shooters moment, we have the incredible opening with the guys on a giant oversized shopping cart. And I just always love that because it's just the perfect way to telegraph the tone of the movie. We're taking sketches from the TV and we're just doing them bigger. They are just physically larger with a crazier budget. And incidentally, the giant shopping cart was actually an old prop used in the 1981 film, The Incredible Shrinking Woman. And I guess Preston Lacey, one of the Jackass crew people, spotted it on the studio back lot and incorporated it into the film. And predictably, reviews of Jackass the Movie were unkind, to say the least. The New York Times dismissed Jackass the Movie as, quote, a documentary version of Fight Club, shorn of social insight, intellectual pretension, and cinematic interest. Um, Finish him! I, (laughs) I respectfully disagree. I don't want to wax poetic about Jackass any more than I already have, but the bits in this are just truly tremendous both in their economy and in their execution you know as i just mentioned a second ago i used to be embarrassed as a kid when my parents would catch me watching this show because on one hand you could argue that it is rock bottom lowest comma denominator entertainment but i just i thought at the time i mean first of all i thought that it was so funny and now looking back on it it really does follow in this continuum of like silent film stars like Buster Keaton and then the Three Stooges and then Looney Tunes and then Jerry Lewis. Like, I wonder in all seriousness if Jackass is huge in France because they love (laughs) Jerry Lewis and all that like Jacques Tati stuff. Like, I could see the humor really. It's the kind of thing where you don't really need to know the language even. Yeah, it's true. That's something. Yeah, it's something that is really interesting to me. Uh, Two bits from Jackass 3D, which I think is the best Jackass movie stick out. The High Five where they build a giant foam hand that whacks people onto their butts. It's spring-loaded. The way it builds is just so perfect. They call Ryan Dunn into the room, smacks him down. Then they call Aaron, carrying a tray of soup. (laughs) Guy carrying a thing of soup gets smacked down. It's so perfect. I mean, this is like comedy 101, the way they just distill it down. And then they finally raise the stakes for Bam, who gets hit after they strap bags of flour to the hand, which sends them flying amid a cloud of white powder. I think they call it antiquing in the world of the show. It's just such a simple, logical bit. But I I think... 
I think my favorite bit of all time is the jet engine bit, which is just perfect. They just set people in tableaus up behind a jet engine of a plane and watch them get blown away by a blast of air. They set up a dinner scene and they have a guy in a top hat and tails walk across the jet stream with a tray of cocktail goblets and then he gets blown away. It's beautiful. I mean, it's like it's an old <laughs> cartoon brought to life. It's live action cartoons. And I think I also really like this one because it's one of the few jackass stunts where no one appears to get seriously hurt and it's not especially gross. So It's very pure. Yeah, I love that. And it comes full circle for Knoxville's heroes being like Tom and Jerry. Yeah. You know, just kind of like slipping on a banana peel. <laughs> <laughs> there were, however, a few stunts that did not make it into the film. Surprising to no one. <laughs> have, you been, have you been listening to this podcast? <laughs> so Bam Margera came up with a sketch that upon reflection, he called, quote, one of the stupidest things ever. He wanted to hire Mike Tyson to bite off his ear. Which you may remember <laughs> is something that has happened involving Evander Holyfield. Uh, producers went so far as to reach out to Tyson, who apparently was deeply offended and said no. And also, there was a stunt planned with Chris Pontius dressed as his devil character and dropping in on a Pentecostal church service where the congregants handle live venomous snakes. <sighs> However, the insurance coverage for the stunt would have nearly doubled the $6 million budget, so they dropped it. Oh, yeah. Nothing like parachuting into a bunch of riled up conservative Christians and their snakes. snakes. (laughs) Good Lord. Uh, Jordan, you know, I've never even seen Bad Grandpa, so you should take this one. Yeah, I just want to give a quick shout out to Bad Grandpa from 2013. It's the movie that featured Johnny Knoxville in disguise as his Irving Zisman character. Not my favorite entry in the Jackass franchise. I thought it tried too hard to be Borat by Mm. shoehorning in a plot. But it's also the only entry in the Jackass franchise to garner an Oscar nomination. Oscar nominated. Yes. We got there. We did it, Joe. Uh, (laughs) Granted, this uh, was not for best acting or writing or directing or shockingly best picture. Uh, It was for best makeup and hairstyling. Johnny Knoxville's reaction to the nomination. Am I as stunned as anyone else? We didn't get the nod for best picture. Well, of course. Duh. He told Rolling Stone. Um, They lost to the Dallas Buyers Club. Uh, I cannot think of another movie that's as far emotionally, spiritually from Jackass. Um, So it's probably for the best that the Dallas Buyers Club won for that award. But Johnny Knoxville keeps a pair of, I don't think I've ever said this phrase, (laughs) extra long prop testicles mounted like a work of art in his home office from this film. Also, during a screening of Bad Grandpa at an Arizona frat house, Johnny's beer was spiked with ecstasy. Hmm. Fun. That's a nice little button on that anecdote. (laughs) Uh, While mentioning Jackass to a number of friends over the course of my research for this episode, each and every one of them spoke passionately about a little scene from the first movie with Ryan Dunn and (sighs) the toy car. (laughs) Euphemistically ingesting a toy car. Johnny Knoxville has cited this as the best skit shot for Jackass. I think it was just when a tribute video to Ryan Dunn. I was surprised to learn that this stunt nearly turned out very different. Uh, this is per Vice's very, very good oral history on Jackass. Spike Jones originally wanted the toy car to be a cell phone, <laughs> but they were too big back then. I think there was some kind of plot about calling it. I, That's, I, yeah. I, I, I don't, I... Okay. Anyway, moving on. Uh, The stunt was imagined with Steve-O in mind, but he backed out because he said his father would disown him for 
use your imagination. Uh, <laughs> then Ryan Dunn stepped up to the plate and Tremaine said, it all just fell into place and everything about it was magical. <laughs> the jackass epitaph. Everything about it was, mm. everything was magical and nothing hurt. Except it. And nothing hurt. <laughs> except, except that except card all hurt. of it. It all hurt us so much. Um, jackass is just, it's on a short list of the most influential media properties of that part of the era, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, John Waters has talked about how much he's loved it. He's been in the movies. Uh, Quentin Tarantino said, and I did, I did not know that until researching this, Quentin Tarantino said that the first Jackass film inspires the gross-out elements of the fight between uh, Daryl Hannah and Uma Thurman in the trailer in the second Kill Bill, like when she's like, steps on the eyeball that she plucks out oh. of her. Mm. Um, so... Just friends in high places. Um, in 2003, the UK created its own show in that mold called Dirty Sanchez, which I will never forgive them for making me say. Finland had the much more whimsically named The Dudesons. I like that. Anybody see The Dudesons? Can't say that is they have. On? Is, this, is this thing on? Um, I would venture that the biggest place that their influence can be felt is on YouTube, which has seen any number of prank channels proliferate like mushrooms in the dark the (laughs) logical nadir of which is almost assuredly logan paul who made international headlines in january of 2018 when he uploaded a video of himself laughing and joking after finding a dead body in uh japan's uh so-called suicide forest but my personal favorite of this show is these guys avowed attempt to normalize homoeroticism which you, it sounds like a, it sounds like I'm putting people on. I am not. You remember that they are all in various stages of nudity throughout the entire show, and they're all very comfortable with it. Pontius and Steve-O in particular, and and it really comes through in Wild Boys, which was like really my favorite of this, where they're just like having the best adventures and just all kind of naked. But they have said that they were trying to do as much. Steve-O told Vanity Fair, Maggie, in 2010, did not tell you. Sadly enough. I was not there in 2020. I'd like to clear the Um, record. He said, uh, we always thought it was funny to force a heterosexual MTV generation to deal with all of our thongs and homoerotic humor. In many ways, all our gay humor has been a humanitarian attack against homophobia. We've been trying to rid the world of homophobia for years. And I think gay people really dig it too. Uh, And he said much the same on a, a site called Gaiety this year. He said, I think what is kind of driving all of that humor is making fun of homophobia. We're poking fun at people who are insecure and people who are negative and hateful. And it is worth pointing out that John Waters is not the only queer icon they had in their movies. They also had a Rip Taylor cameo in one of the films. You know, for all our talk about flying porta potties and bottle rockets launched out of butts and toys shoved up rectums and milking male horses and beehives being batted around like a tether ball. I don't think we talked about that many of these. And cheeks pierced with fishing hooks and different kinds of cheeks burned with cattle brands and teeth pulled with Lamborghinis and rent-a-cars smashed up in a demolition derby and buckets full of vomit and, uh, well, I forgot where I was going with this, but, oh yeah, the most important part of all this jackassery is, of course, the friends we made along the way. (laughs) For all of its sophomoric humor and shock value, the camaraderie is the seldom-appreciated element that makes Jackass so enjoyable. There's a fantastic piece in Vulture by Bilga Abiri that was published earlier this year called The Exquisite Catharsis of Jackass. And in this, he writes, 
Individually, each of these stunts or pranks would seem breathtakingly mean-spirited. But because the films ensure that every cast member watching and giggling at one comrade's misfortune will soon get their own moment of cinematic disgrace, they become something sweet. A group journey of pain, vomit, and tears. Maggie, you mentioned trauma bonding earlier. <laughs> Quote, the films have so effectively created a communal atmosphere that the audience often feels like a part of the jackass team. This is me editorializing. Sometimes that would come back to haunt them with all the people who tried to recreate some of the stunts. But we'll try to keep things positive for this. Johnny Knoxville, this is getting back to the quote, and his pals provide catharsis by letting dogs bite them in the ass and by trapping each other in limousines full of bees. They take our despairing reality and turn it into entertainment by presenting a vision of loyalty and fellowship. The world is effed and everything hurts, they seem to say, but at least we have each other. That's very sweet. Well said. I mean, what is life but a group journey of pain, vomit, <laughs> and tears? Maggie, before we sign off there, or before we get your thoughts and sign off, where can people find you? Uh, you can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Maggie Coughlin, C-O-U-G-H-L-A-N. Otherwise, you can check out VanityFair.com. I write some stuff for them sometimes, and I'm editing the rest of the time. <laughs> Did you have anything else you wanted to say about the Jackass Boys and this wonderful franchise and all the gifts it's given us? I mean, if anything, it's a testament to lifelong friendships and how they can get you through really ridiculous stuff. <laughs> maybe it's surviving a pandemic or, you know, drama in your personal life, or maybe it's doing a stunt where you're covered in bees. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. Uh, thank you, folks, for listening. Thank you, Maggie, for being our first guest on the show. This has been Too Much Information. I'm Alex Heigl. And I'm Jordan Runtog. We'll catch you next time. Too Much Information was a production of iHeartRadio. The show's executive producers are Noel Brown and Jordan Runtog. The supervising producer is Mike Johns. The show was researched, written, and hosted by Jordan Runtog and Alex Heigl. With original music by Seth Applebaum and the Ghost Funk Orchestra. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review. For more podcasts on iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine. Hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways you probably haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Questlove, and Kate Blanchett. 
in recent weeks, I had talked to actor Dan Levy, director Ava DuVernay, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.